All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you again. Um, it's good to be with you this Sunday. What I want to do is actually want to start us off with a question. And the question is this. What do you know about the good life? What do you know about the good life? I want to be clear, this isn't the name of like a TV show that just came out or something. So if you're confused right now, that's okay. Um, it's also not like a rhetorical trick just to kick off a sermon. I want you to actually be thinking about that question. What do you know about the good life? Um, back when I was an English teacher many years ago, I shared a classroom with my friend Eric, who taught a world literature course. And because we shared a classroom, that meant that I like kind of was in his class anyways. So I like audited his world literature class. And I mean this in all sincerity. Um, Eric is a genius. He has an amazing mind and he understands and he can teach literature more compellingly and more effectively than anybody that I've ever known. And that absolutely includes me. And at the root of his world literature course that I had the pleasure of auditing, um, was this profound awareness of a pivot point in the worldview of our culture, of Western civilization. And he would identify that this pivot point happens about 400 years ago during the age of the Enlightenment. And Eric's big idea was this, that all art exists in order to help us wrestle with and explore big questions. That's what we make art to do. And for the entire history of world literature, which is what his course was about, before this moment in like the mid-1600s, the central question that human beings the world over were dealing with was a definition of the good life. That's what ancient mythology is ultimately about. That's what the Odyssey is about. If you skipped it in high school, now you know. It's ultimately about what is the good life. That's what Beowulf is about. And that's even what the Bible is ultimately about. How do we know what kind of life humans are meant for? How do we define the good life? Now, in various cultures and across time, opinions about the answer to that question have always varied. Maybe we're meant to be strong warriors, or maybe we're meant to raise families. Maybe we're meant to gain influence in the world or to gain wealth. Maybe we're meant to become wise or even to become holy. But here's Eric's point in his class. Answering the question is what literature and what storytelling has generally been about. How do we figure out what our definition of the good life is? However, in the age of reason, what Eric's class noted was that there's this seismic shift in our curiosity as people. We become more science-minded. There's a whole lecture I could give about all this, and we can do that over coffee if you'd like. There's nothing I enjoy more than talking about the Enlightenment, but we'll save it for the most part. But the short version is that we become more science-minded, and as a result, questions about ethics, which is to say questions about the good life, they move from the forefront of our collective thought into becoming questions of definition. And instead, they become these more private concerns. The good life becomes a private concern that's relative to each individual person. And what happens is that as a group, as a society, instead, what we begin to fixate on is what we can know and what can be discovered in the world. And this emphasis on discovery and knowledge is great news for encyclopedias. It's great news for scientists. It's ultimately great news for doctors, which makes it in some ways great news for us. But this shift leaves the average person a bit lost about the meaning of things. 
And we know that this happens. We know that people start to feel lost because what we write about and what we create art about begins to change. And so if you're a scholar of these things, if you look back at art, what you notice is that for the last 400 years or so, we've asked a lot fewer, that was a terrible grammatical sentence. We've asked far fewer definitional questions about the good life in our art. And we've instead fixated on subjective questions about who we are and where we find individual meaning. Those are the two things that art tends to be about now. Who are you? Where do you find meaning? And the reason for this shift is because we're no longer sure that there's any single answer about the good life that can apply to everyone all the time. Okay, I got in the weeds. I will admit this. But here's where I'm going. I think one of the biggest obstacles that we face in understanding and embracing the Bible is our confusion about what the Bible is for. As modern people, we go to literature to learn about ourselves. But the Bible is still trying to tell us how God intends for things to be. It wants to teach us definitionally about the good life. But we get hung up on questions about whether or not the answers work for us. I would contend there is no clearer picture of this tension than in a passage in the Bible called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a collection of nine sayings of Jesus that you can find both in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. And in both instances, they're placed at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry, and they get treated as these like keystone ideas or keystone phrases for what Jesus is trying to show us about the good life. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be exploring these verses, these nine sayings throughout our year this year as what we call our interlude series here at Revolution, which is to say the series that we operate by preaching a sermon in between all of our other major series of the year. So we're going to be like hitting on Beatitudes all throughout 2024. And so because we're going to be doing this all year, it's important to get the groundwork right. And the challenge for the groundwork here is redefining the main word that we find in these nine sayings. And the main word is blessing. Now, all of the Beatitudes follow the same pattern. They begin by identifying a group of people as blessed. And then they tie that group of people to a promise of God. An easy example to kind of set the frame for us can be found in Matthew 5, 7, which reads like this. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, the message here seems obvious at first, right? People who forgive other people will then, in turn, be forgiven. It seems like an instruction. Forgive, be forgiven. But the problem is that this particular interpretation of this passage flows not from a biblical understanding of those words, but from a modern understanding. Because what we're doing is we're reading this looking for what we need to do in order to get what we want. And this makes sense, and we fall for this, because this is what we generally think blessings are all about, right? Blessings are about getting. They're about receiving something. And so we like passages like this because, well, we're consumers, and we're consumer-minded. This feels like something we can go do and then get what we want. The trouble, though, is that what Jesus is doing here is defining, not instructing. He's not telling you what to do. He's telling you how things are. 
right, we're going to do a little translation work to kind of suss this out. This is kind of a, we got a, a weird sermon for you guys this morning. I promise we'll do some like storytelling here in a little bit, but we've got to do some word work, which I love. So the word blessed here comes from a Greek word called makarios. And this word means of the gods or like the gods. And its implication is typically active, right? To say makarios is to invoke a divine gift for somebody else. It is to, to ask for a blessing. So blessed in Greek takes on this sense of receiving something. It makes sense in the translation. The problem, however, is that Jesus isn't speaking Greek. Jesus is speaking Aramaic. And the Aramaic word he was most likely using doesn't really translate well as makarios. What it does is it flows downstream from another word in Hebrew, and that word is ashray. Ashray carries some of the same sense as makarios, but with this one really important difference. When Jews call something ashray, they're not saying it is necessarily a gift from God. What they're saying is that it is of the good life. And that's important. So take, for example, a place where we see the word ashray in the Old Testament, which we can find here in the first psalm. The first psalm begins like this. Blessed, ashray, is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, in this context, right, the person does not receive a blessing. Rather, what's happening is that the way they're living lines up with blessing. They avoid wickedness and they delight in God's law, which means a more helpful way of understanding this phrase for us in English might be this. The good life belongs to one who does not walk in step with the wicked. The good life belongs to someone who doesn't do that. And so anytime we encounter the word ashray, you need to think the good life belongs to. So ashray is a person who has figured things out, right? Ashray is a way of talking about living right in the world. So to that question that we started with forever ago, what is the good life? Is a way of asking what is ashray to you? I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do? Maybe, no. Just, we're just gonna take our chances. All right, don't move. This will make this all more fun if I just stand very still and I'll enjoy it more. All right, what is a shray to you is the question, right? And so maybe a shray to you is making enough money to pay the rent. That's like having life figured out. Or maybe, a shred to you is like a job that you like and that you enjoy going to every day with people that you get along with. Or maybe a shred is like just having good friends in your life. Or maybe a shred is like happiness or confidence in yourself. I don't know what your definition is, but I do actually want to pause for a second and let you get one. What is the good life to you? Like, think about it. Teachers count for 10 seconds, that's the rule. Now that you have this definition of a shred, let's go back to the Beatitudes and ask what is the good life 
according to Jesus. Matthew 5, 1 through 5 reads like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, The good life belongs to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Ashray are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Ashray are the meek, for they, for they will inherit the earth. So the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, these are the ones who are right now living the good life. These are the ones who have it all figured out. These people aren't doing something on purpose. They're not enduring some trial or passing some test of suffering so that in the future they can receive some blessing. What Jesus is saying is that they're blessed already in the midst of hardship. Because these words here, this sense of blessing is definitional. It's not an instruction. Now, it shouldn't surprise us to find out that Jesus has like a revolutionary view of the world. We talk all the time about the apparently kind of backwards path of Jesus's ministry. He's a king who's born to the poor. He's a leader who chooses to serve. He's a high priest who, when he goes to the temple, turns to tables over there. He's a god who chooses death as a way to victory. Jesus is always doing upside down stuff. We're used to that. But here's the thing, right? It is a lot easier to stomach Jesus's upside down way of living when it's his way of living, isn't it? Not when it's yours. When what he's promising us is that he will endure all kinds of terrible things so that we one day get future redemption and salvation and deliverance. The good times are coming. We're just going to have to deal with this. The good times are coming. I just need to take care of a few things first. That's the gospel that we prefer. It's the gospel we get excited about. When we look at Jesus, we're not looking for somebody whose life of suffering and service is meant to be definitional for us. But here, at the beginning of his ministry, what happens is Jesus paints a descriptive picture of the kingdom of God that isn't about the stuff that's coming in the future. It's about the stuff that's already here. Ashray are those of you who are suffering because God is already near to you. Good life is not necessarily what you expect, but the good life might be what you already have. That's depressing. I don't want this to be the good life. So is there any hope that we find, right? Well, let's look at just the first beatitude here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we've done the deep dive on the word blessed. So now we're going to do another and ask, what does poor in spirit mean? There's a lot of bad Bible reading out there about this verse. And so I want to be careful. 
But if we stick with our plan from earlier, where we look for the Hebrew and the Aramaic words that are beneath the Greek translation, I think we again discover something pretty interesting. The word spirit here, we trace it back, comes from a Hebrew word ruach, which means two things. It means wind, like literally wind, and it also means like life energy. And it comes from the very beginning of the Bible, when God breathes life into the body of Adam that he's like made for him. So it's God's breath that like wakes Adam up. It's a wind, but it like fills him with verb. It like fills him with energy and life. And so ruach is this word for getting at that power, that life power people have for moving and thinking and existing and changing things in the world, the stuff that makes you like an active and capable person in the world. And the idea is, of course, it comes from God who breathes it into us, and then one day it will run out from us, and then we'll go back to what we were before, right? Ashes, dust. And so the idea here is that those who are poor in Ruach are those who are weary and downtrodden. Those who feel powerless, like they don't have all the life energy and breath that they are supposed to, like they're running low. People, like perhaps it's not quite the same as depressed as we understand the term, but I think it's actually something similar. It's a word or a phrase that refers to people who feel weak when it comes to their ability to impact or transform the world. Powerless. And I would contend that today, in the year of our Lord, 2024, many of us feel poor in spirit. We feel low in ruach. Because we see problems all around us in the world that we feel zero capacity to impact or change or fix. We see wounds in ourselves that we do not know how to heal. We're living in a time where like getting enough money is tough, where like working jobs is tough, where politics are tough, where relationships in our families are tough, where doing laundry constantly is tough. Like life is tough and we feel low in ruach, poor in spirit. And I think the poor people that like Jesus is speaking to once upon a time in Galilee feel much the same that same sense of powerlessness, right? They have problems with Rome, right? They have problems with taxes. They have problems with the religious authorities who are in a different city and who kind of ignore them and don't pay close attention to them or what they need. They have like problems with their neighbors. They, they have problems all over. And it must have felt for the people in Galilee in this like backwater part of Judea and similar to how it feels for us, which is like nothing anybody does is going to make any difference in the world. You have no capacity to change or affect your own life or the life of your neighbor. That's poor in spirit. And so the question is, like, what in the world does Jesus mean when he says the people who feel that are the people who are right now living the good life? The people who have it figured out. How is being powerless being blessed? Back when I was a teacher, when I was friends with Eric, the genius who taught world literature, like these stories are coming back around. That's what's about to happen. It was a Friday when I was in that classroom that I shared with Eric. It was a Friday afternoon when like the roof caved in. And I don't mean this literally, the roof is fine, but I mean like the roof in my life. 
I was packing up at the end of the day, end of the work week. I was getting ready to head out for the weekend. And my principal came into my classroom and he told me that a former student had accused me of an extremely serious act of misconduct. And there was no truth to the story, but my principal couldn't know that yet. And I was like as blindsided as I have ever been in my whole life. Now, because it was a Friday, he said that like the formal conversation with the student's parents and with the superintendent wasn't going to be able to happen until Monday afternoon. So that's awesome. And so in the blink of an eye, like I went from like thinking about what we were going to eat for dinner that night or like what we were going to do with the kids on a Saturday to thinking about how I was going to go home and tell Meredith about this accusation. And then like what in the world I could possibly do on Monday to like prove a negative, to like prove a thing didn't happen. And I was like, like as wrecked as I've been. And I don't want to create any suspense here in the story, so let me just get to the end, right? Like by the time Monday came around, the accusation had disappeared. I was able to account for my time and actions, and there was no crisis. Everything was fine. I didn't lose my job. Everybody like went back on the same page. All was well. But I'm telling you this story because those three days, that Friday through Sunday, radically changed my relationship with God. Before I went to bed that first night, I remember like stepping out onto the porch and like just reading the Psalms. I just started reading the Psalms on my phone. I have never been somebody who connected well with the Psalms. I like music, I like singing, but Psalms do not do it for me. I find them like super boring and repetitive for the most part. But that weekend, like over that three days, I read almost the entire book. And they were so suddenly rich to me, so comforting. More than comforting, they were like nourishing to me. I felt like the nearness of God over those three days in a way that I have never felt before and honestly that I I still have never felt since. My devastation, my powerlessness in that moment brought me close to the kingdom of God. I think the reason is because all the other things that distract me, that typically keep me distant from the kingdom of God, it just evaporated. All I had was God. And that turned out to be all that I needed. When Jesus tells this like ragtag group of people who are following around the desert in Galilee that astray are the poor in spirit, He's not telling them what they need to do in order to find God's kingdom. They're already there. This isn't something they need to do. What he's doing is he's describing to them where they currently are, and he's saying that even here, the kingdom of God can be found. More than that, it's near. It can be touched, and it can be experienced. And in fact, the poverty and the hardship that you're facing grants you access to that kingdom in a way that those who are more distracted are going to struggle to discover. I want to be really clear with this point. God doesn't want you to face hardship or to suffer. He is not rooting for you to be low or lacking in ruach. That's not the point. This isn't prescriptive. This isn't an instruction. It's a description, a definition 
But what is being defined here, what is being said, is that when you are in that place, when being low in Ruach is where you find yourself, he is there. And so you don't need to waste any effort trying to like climb to the top of the mountain to find him again, which is, I think, what we typically do. Rather, by discovering him so close when we're down in the valley, we have the opportunity to realize that the kingdom of God is always near. That you're never as alone as you think you are or you feel. You don't need to be powerful or righteous or say some magic words to get God's attention. God's attention is being freely poured out on you and you are blessed any time when or in any place where you experience that presence of God. The good life is not what we expect. What makes it good is being on track with God's blessing, with his presence and his love and his attention. So wherever you are, you can turn and face him. You can be embraced by him at any moment. God's kingdom is so upside down compared to the world in which we're living that those who seem to be in the worst spots in the world often have the best view of that kingdom. It is most accessible to them. The Beatitudes aren't instructions for how to be holy. What they are is they are invitations for those who feel weak in the flesh to pay closer attention to their spirits, to see this capacity for attentiveness as a blessing that can then help them live inside out, upside down lives, right? If God is our source for ruach, for power, for hope, for sustenance, then what does chasing the world's version of a good life really offer us? And even more importantly, what freedom might we find in embracing God's version instead? Like how much more generously might we live if we have found in our lowest moments all the things that we need? How much more forgiving might we be if we have learned how easily and readily we can be forgiven? How few things we have to do to be forgiven. How few apologies we have to make. How few penances we have to pay. All we have to do is just cry out and it's given to us. If we forgave people like that, how different might the world be? How much different might we be, Right? How much more loving and kind and helpful could we be if we realized how free we were even in our lowest moments? When we accept our belonging in God's kingdom, we escape the rat race of the world's kingdom and become people who, despite what material things we lack, suddenly have this overwhelming supply of spiritual things that we can give. So as we wrap up, there are these the invitation here is twofold. There are two things. The first invitation for you this week is this. Stop and look around. Whatever worries are weighing you down, however far down into the pit you may feel like you have fallen, it is possible, or rather I should ask you, is it possible that God is even nearer to you now than he has ever seen before? He is an upside down kind of guy. I contend that if you open your eyes, wherever you are, my own past experience has taught me that you might just see him. And you don't need to try and climb out of the mess or fix the mess first. You can ask him right now, whatever is going on, to give you the life, to give you that ruach that you long for. Because where you are, you are blessed. 
not because God wants you to suffer, but because when you suffer, you run out of reasons to doubt if he's there. And the second invitation, first is to stop and look around. The second invitation is this, to try and flip the script on some of your bad days. Don't let fear or worry narrow your focus so that all you see is misery. Instead, ask God to help, help you see, help show you opportunity. Like, what can the hardship I'm experiencing today help me see or understand? How can I find God's kingdom in the middle of whatever mess I'm in? And what am I being equipped by being in this mess to be able to offer to somebody else? Here's an example from my own, my own walk. Like, one of the hardest things about this job is that I end up bearing witness to a lot of pain. Some of you guys know that. And I'm not going to go into details, but there is weight in our lives that this church exists to help us share. That's the thing we talk about all the time. It's one of the reasons that we're here. And oftentimes when we do share the weight of our life in this community, the first person to like wedge their shoulder under the burden ends up being the pastor. And like I'm not saying that because I'm doing something special. I'm saying it because it's part of my job. I understand that that's part of my job. It's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And also it's really what we're all supposed to be doing. But when a lot of weight piles up, what happens in me, because I'm a regular old human like you, is that I tend to stop seeing the purpose or the value of shouldering that weight and I instead just end up feeling frustrated and sad. And I feel self-pity and I feel resentment sometimes even to the people who are doing me a kindness by sharing weight with me. And my vision narrows in those moments to just me and my problems. But what this message does is it reminds me that when we share our hardships, we're not getting further from where we're supposed to be. We're not getting like further from God's kingdom. It's not a detour or a distraction. We're actually getting closer to where we're supposed to be. It is a gift to be trusted and welcomed into hard things with people. It is not a burden. And that doesn't mean that any of us should like look forward to suffering, but it means that if we can flip the script on the days where we feel self-pity, where we're feeling the hardship of the world, we can flip the script. We have this opportunity if we're willing to look for it when things are hard to like rediscover and feel more deeply these two core truths of our faith, which are that we are loved and that we are never alone. So like the closing blessing is this. May we be people whose eyes and hearts are open this week. And may we recognize God anywhere and everywhere we are. And may we redefine the good life, not as what we are chasing in this world, but as a kingdom that we can participate in at any time, even today.